Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher in New York City, and this week I want to start off right away with a tweet that I received from a Twitter user by the name of Bob Dylan Smiling. Now, I don't understand your name, but I kind of like it. His, <laughs> his profile pic is an actual picture of Bob Dylan smiling, which is something that most of us have never seen before. Uh, he's not known for being a, a jovial, happy guy. Anyway, Bob Dylan Smiling wants to know, uh, he says, Clayton, I love the podcast. First of all, thank you so much, Bob Dylan Smiling. Attending my first WSOP, what do you suggest I throw in a backpack to take with me to the tables? Okay, guys, I've been getting a lot of emails and tweets at Clayton Comic uh, about this subject. What do I need to do to make sure that I am prepared? Like, what should I have in my bag? What should I make sure I do? Uh, look, this is going to be a personal decision. The best answer I can give you is I can let you know what I take with me when I leave my hotel room for the day to go play in a major event, whether it's the WSOP or the Mystery Bounty at the Win or whatever else I'm going to be playing. Uh, my backpack will always contain, and I mean always, a sweater or a jacket because most of these casinos think that because it's 114 outside, it needs to be negative 114 inside to balance it out. Uh, believe me, if you've never been inside a Las Vegas casino, in the middle of June or July, it will be colder than you can possibly imagine it being. I've actually literally worn a winter hat with my jacket that I like to wear at the tables. You guys, have, you know, those who have seen me on TV, I usually wear my favorite leather jacket. It's like a lucky jacket or something. I don't know. I just feel comfortable in, in this particular jacket. Whatever makes you feel awake alive, and most importantly, not freezing your butt off. So have a jacket or a sweater. Um, you know, bottle of water is good. You can use a reusable bottle. At least at the Rio, they always had water coolers, similar to what you might find in an office environment where we could fill up our bottles for free uh, just by heading over to the water coolers and filling up your bottle. Uh, they did not do that during COVID. I'm not sure why that was <laughs> not a thing during COVID, but I guess they didn't want us all touching the same water cooler or something. But look, you know, don't waste all that plastic buying those tiny water bottles from uh, the cocktail servers at the casino. Don't do that. All right. Uh, other things you might want to bring if you're a snack kind of person, if you don't do intermittent fasting or you don't think you can wait until the dinner or lunch break, have a piece of fruit or some trail mix, something like that. I recommend healthy snacks if you are a snacker. I personally don't snack. I like to wait until it's time to eat and then eat. But yeah, I don't want you to be relying on the offerings that are available to you in the casino because most of them are very unhealthy and will probably cause you to have a, a, a crash. You know, so in other words, if you just grab a Snickers bar from the gift shop for $11,000, and then after you eat that Snickers bar, you might feel good, but a little while after that, you might start to have a, a sugar letdown. So you don't want that. You don't want any of those big spikes. Just a, 
you know, I don't know, an apple or some trail mix, something like that would probably go a long way. Other things in my bag, obviously I'm going to have my headphones, my eye drops because my eyes always get dried out uh, in the desert. So yeah, want to keep those nice and lubricated so you can see what the flop is when they deal it. Medical things, whatever pills you might have to take. I just usually have some Aleve or Advil in my bag just in case I start to get a headache or something like that. Like if they seat me next to Mike the Mouth Matasau. And I like to bring a portable charger, uh, a standalone portable charger in case my phone starts to die. I don't know if every casino is going to have uh, the tables where you can plug in and charge your phone at the table. So I don't just bring a cord for my phone, but I actually bring a literal charger. So it's a rechargeable charger that carries a charge. And so when I'm at the table, I can plug in my phone, even if the one on my phone, or rather at my table, is not working properly, or if it happens to be a place where they don't offer that service. Some casinos don't have the high-tech tables that you can actually plug into the table. But even there, you need to bring your own cord. So... That's important. I mean, you want to be able to tweet that you're the chip leader after hand number three. Very, very important. Uh, if you guys can't hear it in my voice, I am extremely excited for this summer and all the poker action that is going to be coming up. I really can't wait to just get out there and get started and get going. I know that many of you are too, but I think this is a really good question. What is in your bag? So let me put it out to you, our loyal listeners. Uh, why don't you tweet me at Clayton Comic and let me know what's not what I haven't said that's on your list of things that will absolutely be in your backpack this summer. Now today I want to review a few hands that I played on America's Card Room ACR. Uh, there's a daily $55 PKO that I played uh, one day last week, and I had some interesting hands, so. I've jotted down a few notes on some of them, and I thought we could maybe talk through them on this episode. I feel like online poker is a great way to just sort of practice things that you might be reading or seeing on the videos on Tournament Poker Edge or wherever else. So, uh, yeah, I've been playing a little bit online, just trying to keep my chops up and just to get ready for some spots that might arise uh, this summer. So this hand comes from the 15,000, 30,000 level and there's 8,500 ante per person. We have 1,150,000, which is just a little above average at this point in the tournament. Uh, the action folds to the button, who is a Russian player that uh, if you ever, if you've never played on ACR, you can mouse over your opponents and find out what country they're in. Although I'm not sure how much of that can be manipulated through VPNs or anything else. I guess all this talk lately about people cheating in online poker, I don't even trust when it says Russian Federation. Is that really where the person is or not anymore? But anyhow, uh, it folds to the button. He's a fairly aggressive, uh, typical Russian player, but he's not as wild as some of them tend to be. Uh, he has me barely covered, so his stack is a little more above average than mine. I think the average around this point was probably about eight or 900,000. Uh, he min raised, makes it 60K. And the small blind folds. The action is on Hero, Clayton, in the big blind, holding the King of Hearts, Six of Clubs. So King Six offsuit facing a min raise from the big blind. I think it's pretty uncontroversial to call. 
You could put a hand like this in your occasional three bet bluffing range. You do block pocket kings and ace king just a little bit. I would rather be suited uh, if you were going to do a king six three bet bluff. Uh, but yeah, I don't see any problem with just calling and, and seeing the flop. So that's what I did here. Uh, I do think folding a hand this strong versus a button open from an aggressive opponent is a little too tight. So if you're in the habit of throwing away king six offsuit in this exact set of circumstances with uh, you know relatively deep stacks, 35, 40 big blinds, I think that you are being too tight from your big blind. So anyway, we call king of hearts, six of clubs, heads up, out of position, and the flop comes ace of hearts, four of hearts, four of clubs. So ace, four, four with two hearts, and we have the king of hearts in our hand. There is about 171,000 in the middle, and we check to the razor as we always will in this situation, and he decides to continuation bet 60K, so that's about a third of the pot, a little tiny bit more. Uh, I probably should check raise here. You know, uh, he won't always have an ace in his hand. And whenever he doesn't, it will be a lot of pressure for him to call a check raise with uh, hands that have us crushed like king, queen, king, jack, king, 10, and so on. Uh, we also can pick up a lot of equity on the turn when it comes a heart. I also don't expect our opponent to have very many fours, although in fairness, we probably don't have all that many fours ourselves, but we ought to have a few more than he does in his range. So I feel like there are a lot of good reasons to check raise this flop. I don't hate folding, but I do think calling is better. So uh, in this situation, I think the best play is to check raise, usually with a hand like this, but I decided to just call and we're going to see a turn. Now with 291,000 in the middle, the turn comes the tray of spades. So no help to hero. And we check again to the original razor who checks behind. So a small continuation bet on the flop and then a check back on the turn is typically indicative of a low to medium strength hand. Uh, he could have something like Queen Jack or Jack 10 that we're actually ahead of at this point. He could also have a pocket pair like maybe pocket nines that just doesn't want to bet again, but may do so on the river. Uh, and of course, he could be pot controlling with a weak ace. But I think we can discount that just a touch because many players, especially Russian players, tend to bet for protection in situations like this, especially now that a few more straight draws have appeared on this tray of hearts, a uh, tray of spades rather, turn card. Anyway, we check, check, and I'm just trying to give you my process of uh, hand reading here. The river comes the jack of hearts for a final board of ace of hearts, four of hearts, four of clubs, tray of spades, jack of hearts, hero holding the king of hearts, six of clubs for king high. So can we win the pot with king high? It's possible, but I doubt it because if we check and king high is good, usually this opponent is going to bluff with all of his hands that can't show down. So I expect to get bluffed off of this pot when our opponent has that queen jack or jack 10 type of hand or even worse, 
unpaired cards. I don't expect him to just show down 10 high too often, for example. So that is, uh, well, I just said queen jack, but uh, the river was a jack. So I mean when he doesn't make a pair on the river. Uh, also note that the river brings in the flush and we probably have more flushes in our range than he does, given that the ace of hearts and the king of hearts are known to us. The ace of hearts is on the board. The king of hearts is in our hand. This feels like a spot where we can represent that flush in a pretty credible way. So for all those reasons, I didn't want to lose to king queen specifically because that, that would really make me want to kick myself for not bluffing the river. Uh, or I really don't even want to end up chopping with a hand like king 10 that would check check and then we have the same hand given the paired board. So I decided to bluff with this. I fired 87,000, about 30% of the pot, and my opponent called and won with ace nine offsuit, ace of clubs, nine of spades. So I'm not sure if I would have played his hand uh, the same in his shoes. Um, I'm sure that he was planning to bet. He probably felt like he had a two streets of value type of hand, didn't want to get check raised on the turn, so he just checked it back for pot control and to see how I played the river. I think that the way that our opponent played this hand was uh, in a way that made it easy for him, but wasn't necessarily the most profitable in the long run. I think that he should bet the turn quite often and check back on the river. The problem is when he gets check raised on the turn, it will sometimes be with a bluff. And I'm not sure if I would have check raised the turn with my exact hand, but certainly our opponent would have had to play poker if we did. <laughs> and uh, he probably just didn't want to do that. I am fairly aggressive. And so I get some check backs that a more straightforward opponent might not. So anyway, uh, that one didn't really cost us that much, but I thought there were a few interesting decisions there in the decision tree, if you will. Later on, we got moved to a different table in the same tournament. The blinds were 20,000 and 40,000 with uh, 6,000 ante per player. So we have uh, 3 million in our stacks. So we're doing quite well at this point. The average then was only about 1.6 million. So almost 2x the average, or as Daniel Harrington fans will say, a Q of two. Yeah, Q used to mean your relationship between the average stack and your own. Anyway, uh, the small blind has us covered at this table, but no one else does. He's got about $4 million, and the action happens to fold to him in the small blind, the only player that has us covered, and he completes. We are in the big blind, holding the eight of hearts, seven of spades. So eight, seven off, facing a limp from the small blind. I think this is a pretty easy check, right? This doesn't need to be one of the hands that we raise. Uh, a lot of players nowadays are limping their full range in small blind versus big blind situations. Um, depending on my opponent, I'm doing quite a bit of that myself. You want to be able to protect your limping range. And one way to do that is just limp everything and be pretty aggressive about three betting if you think that the big blind is pretty aggressive in his two betting or raising. So I am aware that that is the current prevailing strategy. And so I decide to just check and see a flop 
with the eight of hearts, seven of spades. There is 128,000 in the middle, and my opponent and I have over 3 million each, so SPR is not an issue in this hand. The flop comes, 10 of hearts, seven of hearts, tray of hearts, hero holding the eight of hearts, seven of spades. So we flop middle pair with a flush draw, and the small blind leads for 64,000. Half the pot. Now, please note that this is a probably a mistake on the part of our opponent, regardless of his holding. Uh, on monotone boards, where it's all one suit on the flop, you typically want to make a smaller bet. If you have the flush, you will only really get value from hands that don't have a flush if you are offering a good price. Um, also, typically no one has anything on boards like this, so it doesn't really cost that much to find out if your opponent is holding two unpaired black cards on an all-red flop. So it's generally a mistake whether he's betting for value or bluffing to go with this sizing. As a rule of thumb, when it's all one suit on the flop, you should bet small, if at all. And there's a lot more checking, according to Solverland, than most of us actually do in these spots. So anyway, he does bet half the pot, and Hero decides to call. I got a lot going on here. I've got a backdoor straight draw, I've got a flush draw, and I've got middle pair. So let's see another card. I call, and the turn is the Ace of Hearts, giving us the eight high flush on a board of 10 of hearts, seven of hearts, tray of hearts, ace of hearts, and now opponent checks, and we check behind. Now, the reason I check behind is because I don't think that I have two streets of value for my eight high flush draw. In other words, I can either get a bet out of him now, or I can get a bet out of him on the river, but not both, unless we're actually beat right? I mean, maybe he'll make a curious crying call with a low heart, but we're kind of running out of low hearts anyway. The seven's already out, the tray's already out, and I have the eight. So I'm hoping he has specifically the eight, uh, the six, the, the, the five, the four, right? So we're kind of running out of cards for him to call with. So for that reason, I decide to check on the turn because I think I can squeeze a little bit of value out of my eight high flush on the river if he checks again. And I might also be able to get some value on the river if I check behind on the turn and my opponent incorrectly senses weakness and decides to try to bluff me off of whatever I have. Uh, I will then look him up. I think this hand serves as a great bluff catcher for the times when our opponent bets the river. And it also serves as a perfectly fine value bet in the event that our opponent checks to us and then we can go for thin value, trying to get a call from a hand like top pair or perhaps a smaller flush. So uh, that was the plan there on the turn. So we check, check. And then the river is another ace, the ace of diamonds for a final board of 10 of hearts, seven of hearts, tray of hearts, ace of hearts, ace of diamonds. And the small blind checks. Now, uh, as mentioned, the plan here on the end was to turn our hand into a bluff catcher in the event that our opponent leads or a value bet in the case where he checks. So now he has checked, but we weren't exactly planning for the board to pair. So now that it has, 
we have a decision. Do we want to follow through and continue with the plan that we had set in motion on 4th Street? Or does the fact that the board has paired change our mind? I believe this opponent would have led with a very strong hand, such as a full house or better. But there is some chance that he has a pair of tens or possibly even trip aces, in which case it should be very hard for him to resist calling a correctly sized value bet. I went a little big here. I decided to go half the pot on the river. Uh, In retrospect, I think that this bet is a mistake. I should either bet smaller or much bigger to try to sell that I'm bluffing. Uh, Generally speaking, we don't want to bet half the pot on the river. If you're going for thin value or perhaps a cheap bluff, you should go maybe like one third of the pot. And if you want to really polarize yourself, then you should go for a much larger bet, perhaps a pot size bet or even a little bigger than that, a pot and a half, or in some cases, even a little more than that, depending on what you think it will look like to your opponent. Now, when you're playing online, it's very hard to get a feel for your opponent's strength in the absence of physical reads. So I think that I just defaulted to what I now consider a lousy bet size. I put in half the pot, 128K, into the 256K pot, and uh, I got called. And my opponent held the 10 of diamonds, tray of clubs, which means that on the flop he had top and bottom pair, which got counterfeited by the running aces. But still, like I mentioned, I feel when he has a 10, and the ace pairs, making it so unlikely that I actually have an ace, I think that many opponents will pay off a bet on the river when they have a 10. Had I known he had that exact hand, I actually would have bet less. I would have gone for the one-third pot bet, especially in a tournament scenario where you are trying to accumulate chips anytime that you can. You don't want to bet too big when you put your opponent on a medium to low-strength value-holding But in this instance, even though I think that I made a sizing error, it worked out for me, and I'm happy to say that I got paid off by aces and tens when I was holding the eight high flush. So later on in this tournament, I was moved to another table, and at the time when the blinds were 35,000 and 70,000 with a 10,000 ante per player, I was in ninth place with 4.3 million in my stack. Uh, Around this time, the average was just over 2 million. There were 139 players remaining in the tournament, and late registration has finally closed. Those of you who play on ACR know that many of their tournaments have four and five hours of late registration, which given the number of hands played online, is the equivalent of being able to buy into a tournament like this on day two live. So uh, yeah, they have quite a bit of late registration. But yeah, and this one, now we're finally done with that and we're about 90 places away from the money. I believe this tournament paid something like 45 or 54 players. So we're at a whole different table. Uh, The action folds to the cutoff, who has 1.7 million in his stack, so a little below average, and he opens to 147,000. 
So the blind's 3570. So he makes it just a click above, just a smidge, just a scotch above a min raise. And the action folds to me in the big blind holding the ace of spades tray of clubs. Before I tell you exactly what I did, I want to tell you a little bit of background about this opponent. He is from Belarus, as so many of the players on ACR seem to be coming from Eastern Europe, mostly Russia, Belarus, even a little Lithuania thrown in. So this Belarusian player, has uh, he's familiar to me. I've got 400 hands on him, his uh, steel percentage is very high, 82% over 400 hands. Um, His fold to three bet percentage is very low at 20%, which is not very low, but it's, it's lower than it should be. So given those dynamics and the fact that I've played with him in the past, and given that I haven't been at this table for very long, I feel like I have an information advantage, if you will, over this particular opponent who may or may not be using a HUD, and I might know more about him than he does about me. Obviously, calling with ace-tray offsuit is totally fine, but against this particular opponent in this situation, I decided to go for the three-bet. And there's another reason for that. Remember, he starts with 1.7 million. So say I make it something like 450,000 and he calls, then he's going to be left with just 1.4 million and there's already going to be over 1 million or about 1 million in the pot. So he's going to be leaving himself with a pretty undesirable 1.5-ish SPR. And if he's holding a hand like Jack-9 or something like that, he doesn't really want to call the three bet. He's just not deep enough to speculate versus my three betting range because I'm effectively challenging his entire stack. I mean, my C bet, even if it ends up being just 300,000 into 1 million on the flop, that's going to be something like 22% of his stack-ish. So at that point, he will be at or past the the commitment threshold. So he really needs a, a decent hand to tangle with me, even in position in this situation, unless he really wants to have a hard time deciding what to do. So I'm kind of banking on the fact that someone who has an 80% plus steal percentage is probably not going to be holding a calling hand very often. And of course, I'm prepared to throw my hand away if my opponent decides to forbat it, which I don't expect to happen very much at all. So I raised to 453000 and I remember him going into his time bank for a while before finally folding. So Ace Trey takes it down. On the very next hand, we now have over 4.5 million in our stack, still in ninth place, and the action folds all the way around to me in the small blind now, holding the King of Diamonds, 10 of clubs. So, before we decide how to play this blind versus blind scenario, uh, let's look at our opponent, an unknown player from the UK who just joined our table, That seat was actually open in the previous hand. I probably should have mentioned that the table was eight-handed at that point. Uh, This player has 3.2 million, and I have no stats on him. So I think that in this situation, assuming 
that someone playing a $50 tournament on ACR is somewhat competent, I decide to go ahead and limp in from the small blind. Many of you would probably say, well, King 10 is a better than average hand, so you should probably be raising, hoping to not see a flop from out of position with King 10, but having King 10 to play in the event that you are called, that is a perfectly fine strategy. But what many pros I've noticed are doing now, as mentioned, is just limping entire range from the small blind, sometimes folding if it gets raised and sometimes three betting fairly light when it gets raised. So in this scenario, I limp in and then the big blind does in fact raise. He makes it 245,000. So that's a fairly large bet. Again, the blinds are still at 35K, 70K. So he's going 3.5X here, which is totally fine. Very reasonable sizing on the larger side for online. At least from what I've seen in the past playing this particular tournament on this particular site, I would expect the raise to be more like 210. So it's slightly larger than what I would expect. So uh, I don't know what to make of all that, but in this scenario, I decided to just call. This hand is perfectly fine to put into your three bet light range. Uh, if, especially if you feel like the big blind is the type of fellow to sense weakness when we limp in from the small blind, it is absolutely okay to go ahead and put in a big re-raise or even a medium-sized re-raise where you might put him into a tough spot. If he's doing this with, for example, any ace, suited connectors, any pair, including deuces, like some players are that wide with their raising range. And it kind of makes sense because they're in the big blind in position and many times they'll take it down. But when they don't take it down, they'll be playing uh, an inflated pot in position versus what they might perceive to be a pretty wide range that is skewed towards low strength and medium strength hands because the small blind, Clayton, didn't open for a raise, but rather open for a limp. So that is the value of including all of your hands into your limping range because people may incorrectly assume something about your hands. Uh, I decided to just call and play my King 10 from out of position. But again, if you want a three bet with it, that's totally fine. We need to be fairly aggressive with this strategy so that we can punish those who think they can raise from the big blind with any two cards. Not knowing anything about this opponent other than that he is based in the UK and having observed that most British players do not play a wild, loose, aggressive style, I decided to call and just be a tough opponent, a worthy adversary, uh, even from out of position. So yes, we do call. And now with 570,000 in the middle and the opponent with a uh, 3 million in his stack, the flop comes ace of diamonds, eight of hearts, seven of diamonds. So ace, eight, seven with two diamonds hero holding the king of diamonds, 10 of clubs. So we've got a backdoor nut flush draw, a backdoor straight draw, well actually several of them, plus two over cards to middle pair. So that's only important when our opponent does not have an ace. Uh, I decide to check. Opponent C bets 188 into 570K 
and we decide to go for the check raise here. Our opponent does not have to have an ace in his hand. When he does, he may have a weak kicker with it. And there are so many cards that can hit on 4th Street that will improve our equity, possibly giving us the nut flush draw, a pair of 10s, a straight draw. So many good things can happen on the turn. This just feels like a good spot to start bluffing and be prepared to barrel when we improve on the turn. Now, obviously, we want to take it down, right? We hope that he doesn't have an ace and we can just win this pot with king high when our opponent has a hand like, I don't know, let's say pocket fives, right? Pocket, pocket fives, pocket sixes, hands like that might just want to put out one C-bet and then really give up to any type of aggression on the flop. So we check raise and take it down once again. So that's two pots in a row that we won, and I'm pretty happy with how I played both of them. Well, that'll do it for this episode. There are a few other hands I wanted to go over from that tournament, so I don't yet want to reveal how I ended up faring overall in that event. I know many of you are waiting with bated breath to find out how we did in that tournament, but yeah, I have some other hands that I'll be happy to discuss on a future episode. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas plays. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Lock in intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Love it, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun, fun.